Welcome to this edition of Toby Haydoke's Who's Round. My interviewee is going to start from the beginning and tell me everything he knows. So you're hearing me walk across the floor. Well, that's very similitude, isn't it? <laughs> um, I, I, I set the scene and I ask you a good question to start. Um, hello, everybody. Uh, this has been really lovely because I've got to know the person I'm about to interview over the past couple of hours. Uh, I'm dependent on the kindness of strangers, and at the moment I'm in the dressing room of a fine actor who's agreed to meet a stranger and talk to him. So I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. OK, um, my name's Sam Cox. Um, you're Toby and I'm talking to Toby because Toby wrote me a letter asking me if he could talk to me for this very podcast and I like the cut of the jib of the letter and, and the fact he's going to invite me out to dinner which we've just been to in a very nice vegeta- vegetarian restaurant excuse the diction in Manchester and uh, I was in an episode of Doctor Who what was it called Toby? The Idiot's Lantern The Idiot's Lantern Round about the year 2006 or something like 2000, that. Yeah, 2006, something 2006, like 2007, that. Or 2007, yeah. we sort of did that and went down to Cardiff to do it. And it was a rather, uh, it was an all right part. And the director uh, was very keen to work with me because he'd seen do something which he really liked. So I didn't have to really audition for it, which is always very nice. Very nice. And I had, my hair was dyed black at the time. And my eyebrows were dyed black at the time because I'd been playing part of Captain Haddock in Tintin. So I had a big black beard and black hair and black eyebrows. So I shaved the beard off, but I was left with black hair, black eyebrows, which is not how I normally am because my hair is quite mousy. Although it's not any at the moment because I've shaved it off. But I quite like the look, so I've got a bit of a goatee beard and a bald head. So I think I quite like that. It's a good look. People might think so. so I have black hair. So I play Detective Inspector Bishop, who is researching into why people's faces are disappearing. And in fact, in the episode, I myself lose my face. And then, in a scene which I believe was cut from the final episode, you see me re-emerge from the, the, um, the shop where the guy who had been being, was being used, his television repairman or television salesman, was being used by Maureen Lippmann's character in order to... Um, you know, he sold himself to the devil, really. And it was in that shop where I lost my face. And then there was a scene, which is cut later on, where you see me emerge, having had my face restored, walking out into the bright Cardiff sunlight. That was the episode which I was in. And I had a, scene, a couple of scenes with David Tennant and a couple of other people. I can't remember who they were now. You'd worked with uh, Tennant before, of course, because you'd played uh, opposite his Romeo at the role uh, Yes, I had. Yes, I had. I had been involved in production of Romeo and Juliet. Which is, is, here's the interesting thing. I'd signed up for the RSC to do something. Didn't particularly, oh, I didn't particularly think, I really want to work for the RSC this time around. Cause, but anyway, it's nine months' work or something like that. And when I got... When I, when I, when I finally went to the rehearsal room for the first day of rehearsal, I, I signed up. I thought I had signed up for two plays, Richard II, and I think Henry V. I thought I signed, and and Michael Boyd, the very lovely man who ran the place and was directing, he said, "I'm so pleased you've come on board for Romeo and Juliet." And I knew nothing about the fact that I'd signed up for Romeo and Juliet. So really, <laughs> I in fact, I've never spoken to my agents about it. Even find out why that was playing the apothecary. So, although I did end up by playing as part of, um, is it Romeo's dad or? What's Romeo's Mon- dad? Uh, Romeo's, there's Montague and Montague. It's Montague. Yeah. I Montague because the long, oh, that's interesting because Vincent Brimble was playing Montague and then he had to go and play he Alfie, 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 Alfie. Alfie. Yeah. So I went on for Vincent for quite a long time so I quite enjoyed that. Um, I did possibly, yeah, I did work with David Tennant for Bigger Mara because actually it's terribly good uh, yeah just a word for the listener you've missed a conversation there but that's your fault uh, <laughs> we were talking about Vincent Brimble before who played oh, yeah. Tarpok in Warriors of the Deep 
but uh, that's not important right now. Okay. <laughs> okay. Next question, please. Tell me. <laughs> okay. Well, I say, is, that say, is that all right? That's yeah, great. And you say it's you say it was an all right part. It's a great part. Um, uh, uh, it is actually you to Bishop. You, no, you actually, it's a, it is a nice part. Yeah, I didn't do it justice. And you have a, a yes, it is brilliant. <laughs> I was watching it today. Oh, I think it's hilarious. And you have that wonderful running gag of being baffled by technology. Yeah, yeah, so you go, right. it's a phone that people can carry around. It's colour television. It's Oh, yeah. oh, it's a hoot. Oh, yeah. Oh, who's that other actor who played? Who plays? Who plays the guy? Ron, Ron Cook. Ron Cook. Lovely actor. Oh, what a great actor. Okay, Ron Cook was in it. Yeah, I had scenes with Ron Cook. So, would you have gone to the read through for that? Would you have gone to Cardiff for the read through? Do you know, I don't think I don't think we did a read through. I, I I don't remember going to a read through for it. I don't know that they did. They do read throughs for it because I just thought they were so continuously sort of such a big treadmill. There's no. But point what about David? Because I I maybe thought when I was looking, you know, when I was researching for this interview that maybe the fact that you worked with David might have uh, helped because you'd re- relatively recently worked with him it was was quite recently. With no it wasn't working with David what it was I was in a production of a, a, a really great piece of theatre I was so lucky to have done it of Feston which Rufus Norris who now runs the National had directed at the Almeida really great what a great piece of work it was very successful and, and the director of the Doctor Who episode which I did had seen that and had liked what I did so he sort of asked me and I did go and see him and the casting person but he was pretty much had made up his mind then to wanted me in it you know that's great you know not doesn't happen very often but it happened on, on that one so I was really pleased to do that and I mean I, I mean I know I've known you for years as a, as a, as a great man of the theatre uh, the interesting thing for me as an actor is that television is a is a funny beast now do you do you do you aspire to television? Well, do you know, I'd really like to become good at it, but I find it very hard because most of the time when you're doing it, you depending on your stature, your status. If you're in an if you're in a series, say sort of you know eight episodes and, and regularly, then I feel then you get to know the people you're working with. You you have confidence that the people want you really in the, in the show. You get to know the, uh, the 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 DOP. You get to know the crew. You get to know the other actors. You can relax into it, and you don't have to spend all your time worrying: Am I doing what the director wants me to do, or should I do what I want to do? Uh, am I? Did they? You don't have all that anxiety. So I quite like to do a job where I have that uh, ease of knowledge that I'm going to be in it for some time so I don't have to keep proving to myself or to in my head to other people that they were right to have given me the part and then I think it would be possible to enjoy it more but I find it quite hard at the moment to really really enjoy it there's a couple of of bits of telly which I have really enjoyed okay one of them was an episode of Crime Traveller. I don't know if you remember. I remember <laughs> Crime well, yeah. Michael French. Michael French. Written by that very clever writer. Anthony Horowitz. Yeah. Anthony Horowitz. And I got, that, I got that job out of the blue. I don't know where it came from. I suddenly got a script saying, would I do this? And I, I looked through the script and I saw there was a scene of an antiques dealer. I thought, oh, okay. It's just a scene with an antiques dealer. That's all. And then I, when I continued reading it, I found out the, that the antiques dealer, but spoiler alert for those who've not seen it, <laughs> was the one who had actually done the dirty deed. So it was a really interesting part. Anyway, when I went to film it, uh, you know, what they do, is you, as you probably sort of surmise, is they shoot from different angles. So they shoot on you and they shoot on the person you're talking to at the time they did. Anyway, it was just one camera, one camera shot and another camera shot. And I had a scene, I think it was Michael French, when they come to interview me, when they come to interview the antiques dealer at this scene and they did all the shooting for it and I was really disappointed with what I was doing. And then the following day, the trader said, we forgot to do the shots on you. Okay. And it was like, fantastic. So now I've got, I've got over the fact that I did a really bad job. Now I can make amends. So from that point on, I started to enjoy it. So I was able to reshoot, reshoot all my stuff and then carry on playing those scenes. I really, I really sort of enjoyed that. I, that was sort of accidental that I enjoyed that. It was accidental because something had happened, which I suppose uh, you know, enabled me to get over my nerves and not be worried so much, you know, as the ego does quite often with some actors, maybe all actors, get in the way of really sort of 
you know, doing the job where you're supposed to. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed a bit of crime. I enjoyed a bit of Doctor Who as well. Not entirely. Didn't enjoy it as much as I wanted to enjoy. It. But is that is that down to you? Is I think that... I sort of think so. I think it's I think it's down to me. And I I, I find that I, I tend to sort of um, as a bit of a you know whenever I've got a script, I'm always trying. To, I'm always doing the whole all the other parts as well. When I'm reading it, I'm I'm rehears you know doing the other parts and doing my part in response to the way that I'm doing the other parts so that when we come to play it and the other actors are just doing it the way they want to do it or are doing it and they're not doing it the way I think it, in my head it's being done so I then make adjustments which I don't think are quite right and so sometimes in my head it's a complete mess and I can't it's very hard to watch yourself a lot of actors say, say this I think it's very hard to watch yourself because what you remember when you watch yourself on the telly is how you felt when you were doing it or what was going on interiorly when you were shooting that scene. You don't see what people who, who are outside it see, who see something they think, oh, it's really good, or whatever they might think, or they might be critical, but they usually say, oh, that's really good. You don't see that, you just see the mess that you were when you were filming it. So that's how I feel most of the time doing telly. I'd like to become better at it, and I think I'd be better at it if I just, you know, I'm get, as I'm getting older, I'm a bit more relaxed as well. I'm a little less concerned about what people think of me, a little less concerned, but only a little less concerned about what people think of me. But as an outsider, irrespective of quality of performance, uh, you know, you you work all the time. I, I mean, I'm, that's I'm, surely that to you as an actor, if nothing else, you even for all the insecurities one might have yeah, as an actor. No. You're absolutely right, and, you know. So, uh, so it's a bit like a, you know, you're up and you're down all the time. I'm sort of up and I think, I said, fine, I'll, I'll come out. I'm fine. I'm really good. I'm really enjoying it. I really look forward to working. I'm going to work. I'm looking forward to doing the show tonight. And then, for some reason, you know, it'll just you'll be uh, you'll go down the crest and you'll go down and you have to reach the bottom of it before you can start to come up. And it's a bit depressing to know that oh, it's happening again. You know, losing confidence in oneself or the production or whatever, and you go out there and you try your hardest to disguise the fact that you don't really want to be out there, and all your energy goes in, you know, it's ridiculous, it's nonsense, and you feel embarrassed and ashamed that you're even feeling that when people have come to pay good money to come and see a piece of work, they're not interested in whether or not you want to do that work or not, you know, they're not interested if you want to be on that stage or not, they just want to see the part they've paid money and you're being paid to do so, it's doubly shaming, not only to feel that, but to be letting people down. You know that old joke about the Bloom family. You know, you've not only let your mother down, you let your father down, but you let yourself down. <laughs> That's what it's like. You say, you've let everybody down, and you've done it again, and you're always doing it. In fact, I felt like this last Thursday, the day after press night, this show I'm doing at the moment. I'm sitting in the dressing room with Toby at Manchester Royal Exchange doing the Crucible. And the day after press night on the Wednesday, on the Thursday, I felt. Absolutely, like I, I, I had to, I had to, I had to really plod to go down to go on stage. It was like didn't want to go, didn't want to be there at all. Couldn't give, couldn't give the performance I wanted to give. Didn't want to give the performance I wanted. wanted you know, it was ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Is that a response to anything in particular? No, I think it was a response to the fact that once you've opened, there's nothing more you can do about it. You can maybe adjust a few little things, but you're no longer in rehearsal. You can't change anything which you think... Which I often, I often quite critical of productions I'm in. You know, I think, oh, this should happen, this should happen. It's too late now. It can't happen. You're stuck. You've, what you've rehearsed is what you're going to perform, whether you like it or not. Even if what you've rehearsed is not right, it's because you've rehearsed it, you know, week after week, and you've done it. That's what you perform. You, you know, it's, you've, created, you've created that, even if it's not quite right. So you have to live with that, and then once you've accepted that, then maybe you can open yourself up to what's happening on the stage, you know, open your eyes and stop being blind. As you, sometimes you may notice, Ted, when you're acting, you go out blind, not paying attention to what the other actors are doing, but, but acting with people, acting with the characters, how you think they should be or how you think they were, not actually how they are. So you're not responding spontaneously, instantaneously on that moment and creating live you're doing a semblance of live acting which isn't really live acting so once you've opened you can begin to maybe relax open your eyes and take the right amount of time to respond to what people are giving you on stage 
know, to what they're saying, and, and then you can take other people in, and you don't have to take any more time about it than you do normally. In fact, it's often quicker because the pace you're going at is a more natural and right and appropriate pace for the piece of work that you're doing. Okay. But on Thursday, last Thursday, <laughs> it was the opposite of that. I was blind. I put, I put, I put bandages around my ears, around my eyes, around my mouth, around my, you know, and walked out there, waiting for the, waiting for the curtain to go down. That's how it was. Inside, inside. So if I'd seen a, if I'd seen a television, if that had been television, and I'd watched that on the screen afterwards, people might have said, "God, that's a really interesting performance." You know, it had real layers to it of fear. You know, for me, it would be like. I wouldn't want to ever see that. Be reminded about, you know, my contempt that I would feel for myself. Okay. That's this boring. is really is it because it, and the funny thing about this podcast is that I've talked to loads of actors from Old Doc Two, largely who are people that aren't acting anymore because of the nature of the business. Yeah. Uh, or I speak to people from New Doctor Who who have a very different experience of being fledgling actors whereas you were actually acting when old Doctor Who was on oh yeah 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 so let's let's go back and it would be interesting to compare and contrast um, so what what uh, what was it that inspired you to be an actor and was that always going to be the case oh ok what inspired me to be an actor and I don't know but what is, you know you know, how, you know you create a narrative for your own life and you sort of create this story and you adjust the story to suit your own mood and my story is is that when I was at, um, I did, I did do a little bit of acting in amateur dramatic society when I was sixteen. I think I'd always, I think, I think from about when I was at the Congregational Church in Adam and Eve Mews in Kensington. We lived in Kensington in three rooms, five, four, four older sisters, mum and dad, and me. Just after the war, we used to go to the Congregationalist Church on a Sunday because they would look after the children. And, and there was Sunday school. I was in love with Mary Cooper at the age of five or six, and I was then cast in the in the Sunday afternoon play. Play. I don't know what it was to play opposite Mary Cooper. So <laughs> that was very exciting. So I've, I've I think there's always been a sense of sort of romance attached to acting uh, because of that. Okay, that's the first part of my narrative. The story which I've invented for myself. I don't know whether it's true, you know. I mean, people act all the time. We, we act in our ordinary lives. We, our, our lives are just acting, acting, acting all the time. And uh, anyway, the next part of my narrative is first, first year at secondary school, English teacher says to all these fledgling 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, who wants to be in the school plays? I put my hand up in the class, but I'm not noticed. Okay, my hand isn't noticed. Four or five others are noticed, and their names go down in the book. I'd had my hand up, I wasn't noticed, but I was too appalled by the fact that it's true, I am invisible. I have no. Okay, to say, excuse, I didn't say, excuse me, you haven't put my name down, I just accepted that. So I was never in the school plays. For some reason, I joined the local amateur dramatic society, the Nightingale Players, did a couple of plays there, and then in the sixth form, at school, I, I was in charge of raising money in our house. It was a grammar school, so we had houses. Maybe all schools have houses. I was Alpha House for the local old people's home or something called Fairlight Hall or something. So I used to put on little plays when I was in the sixth form every Monday morning to raise money for Fairlight Hall from the house. I used to raise nearly 19 shillings, nearly a pound each time we did it. I was way ahead of all the others. Gregory Puskowski, I've done my A-levels, done, done all my exams, had no plans, hadn't, hadn't, hadn't made a single inquiry about what I was going to do after I left school, which you didn't necessarily need to do back in 1969. You know, there were jobs, there were jobs, there were jobs, or university or whatever, didn't bother about it, didn't bother. Gregory Puskowski, who was in my year, who, was <laughs> who played for England rugby schoolboys, was a prop four, and his nickname was Bullet, because... He used to just pile in. Gregory Pliskowski stopped by the school notice board and there was a notice up there for Toynbee Theatre Summer Drama School. And he said to me, I'm going to be doing that this year, only on the stage management side, interestingly. So I said, because I always go through my life hanging on everybody else's coattails, oh, I'll do that too. Okay. 
I hadn't any plans to do it. It wasn't like I was going, I must pursue drama. This is my story. This is my narrative I created for myself. It may not be true. <laughs> so I went to Toynbee Summer Drama School. In fact, um, who was there? Henry Goodman, who's a, oh, yes, an actor, was there, yeah. a couple of other actors who, who, who were doing it as well at the same time. And uh, we did a production of a play called Romanoff and Juliet by Peter, Peter Yusinov. Yeah. Exactly. And I was cast as, as the, Rome, the Peter Yusinov part. And there were a couple of people there who were helping out the two guys who are running the summer drama school, which is for about six weeks or something, who said, oh, you should, know, you should go to drama school. So I was 18 at the time, you should go to drama school. This is in the summer. So it's too late to apply for drama school anyway. But the guy who ran it, called Donald, I can't remember his second name, uh, very, obviously, nice man, who did invite me to go to Corfu with him, interestingly enough. <laughs> I thought, Corfu, that'd be great, I'd love to go to Corfu. <laughs> There's so nothing fishy in that. <laughs> didn't <laughs> think about that. And uh, anyway, he said, uh, you should go to drama school. Easy said than done, of course. But he said, too late to apply. So I went to a place called Kingsway College of Further Education, did a drama, even though I've done my A-levels, did a sort of drama course there for a year. And one of the people running it was a, a, a bloke called Pip Simmons. He used to run a theatre group called the Pip Simmons Theatre Group. And while I was there, I auditioned for Lambda and Central and Brislovic. Didn't get into Central... Didn't get into Brislovic. Didn't, I thought, didn't think I'd got into Lambda either, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. But they must have changed their mind or someone must have dropped out because in June I got an offer. So I went to Lambda. If I hadn't got that offer, I don't think I would have applied again. So this is my narrative that it was all sort of accidental. Okay. So I went to Lambda, 1969. 1972, what's the original question? To well, I did, well, it's just... Why did I get and, into it? And, and anyone you were at drama school still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, there's some very... You know, David Schofield, you know. Probably. Oh, yeah, fine actor. Yeah. Jim Broadbent was in my year too, who was very famous and brilliant. Um, but a lot of people are not acting, or at least yeah. they're doing other things. I know an actor called, who was, I was with called Frank Vincent. He became an osteopath just because bumped into somebody who's married to him quite by chance, you know, hard... Well, this, is what, this is what strikes me about you, Sam, because I, I, mean, I think the acting business is extremely frustrating. Um, but you are that rare thing, which I don't think you really have anymore, is that you're a character actor, and you work as a character. I've seen you on stage a lot, and you don't play people like Sam Cox. Now, quite often when you're cast in things, they want you to be as close as you are yeah. to the person that you play. So I'm interested to see how you've how you've pulled that off. I don't know. I don't. I don't think you go into it thinking I'm going to play a character. You know, you just have a response. I think to a the script, b to how am I going to get noticed in this? Uh, c uh, c am I going to be better than the other people in this? Uh, d uh, I got to make an impression on the first day of rehearsal. So I think what happens is you tend to sort of accumulate sort of habits and mannerisms which which may not necessarily be connected to who you are in your ordinary life but serve to sort of conceal or disguise your yourself and but those become the characteristics which you bring to the parts that you play well because well, at the moment we're in your dressing room you're going to go on stage this week to play Giles Corey in The Crucible last time I saw that play Giles Corey was played by Patrick Godfrey who, <laughs> I, think, Godfrey. who I think is 89 <laughs> uh, yeah, you're not yeah. 89 no no no, no, yeah. no, it's, no, a, no. it's an old man's part yeah it's an old man's part yeah no, no, I'm quite, no I never quite I wasn't quite sure why why I, I you know I've, I've discovered that I'm going up for parts of what Old man, he's in his seventies. Recently, a fan. So I did this thing for Frantic Assembly called Love Song, which had Sean Phillips and Edward Bennett. Yeah, and, and it's two couples, Edward Bennett and Leanne Rowe, I think her name was, and Sean Phillips and myself. We played the same couple at different periods of their lives, and I was playing opposite Sean Phillips, and I'm thinking. Why am I playing opposite Sean Phillips? <laughs> I'm only 12, you know, Sean Phillips is 54. That's <laughs> nice. Why am I going out for these old, old I, you know, I th- why am I going out for 73 year old? Why am I going out for Old Shepherd? Which I'm interestingly doing at the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse. With why am I going out? Giles Corey is 83. Why am I going out for all these parts of old people? I don't, I don't get it. I really, I still don't get it. <laughs> Because I think, I'm not, I'm not like that. Shares in oil of Ulay have plummeted. <laughs> but, you know, 
that, you know, you don't know... Age is the funniest thing, isn't it? Because, you know, when I was growing up... Well, I think for everybody when they grow up, you know, when they're between the ages of 0 and 7, their notions about all sorts of things are formulated before they sort of consciously think about them. So your ideas about what age are... So you look at your, your great-aunt, who's probably only 61, and you think, God, they're really... Like, 61 is really, really old, you think, as a five-year-old person. But no, you know... I mean, I know times have changed and, you know, but one's lives are sort of longer and you don't need to be, your body doesn't have to be worn out now by the age of 60-odd, which it may well have been for a lot of people. And, you know, so it's different. So, but I don't, you know, people aren't the ages that you think, Sure. I'm not the age that I think 65 means. The age of 65 means to me old Aunt Betty, you know, who is frail and... That's what 65, so I don't, I don't sort of buy it, and I sort of do a lot of physical, I keep myself fit and stuff like that, so I don't know why I'm up for these 73-year-olds, but <laughs> I'm hoping that other actors in my age are going to die off, <laughs> you know, so the field will be totally clear for me, you know. I'll just be playing Old Shepherd after, you know, do all productions of Winter's Tale all around the country, you know, oh, that's cool for him, you know, oh, 75-year-old, be another Sam Beasley. Do you mind if I... Do this while I walk over. And yeah, yeah, no, no, of course. Yeah. Fill, fill the kettle, absolutely. So I've got two cups. Carry on, carry on talking. Okay, so, um, so well, I, I alluded to it before when I was talking about the fact that you straddle both eras uh, in the sense that when you started acting, the acting profession was very different to the acting profession. It was now. changing. It was changing. You know, people talk. You know, before I came out in 1972, and it already started to change considerably over the last sort of five years. So before that, there was a big repertory system. You go and join a company, you may be there a year, you may be two years, or six months or something, and you, you'd sort of be an apprentice, unless you were really talented or you had something. You know, so you play lots and lots of parts in a, in a company based in, you know, lots of, lots of theatres in lots of towns. When I started in 1972, that was changing. It wasn't like that anymore. So you maybe go out for three shows, maybe two shows. The first theatre I joined was a company called, not long been going, called the Orchard Theatre, which is a little touring company in Devon, which started. Oh, with um, another actor from drama school who was such a brilliant, who was the most brilliant actor I've probably ever seen. You know, there's other brilliant actors. It wasn't Jim Broadbent who was also brilliant, but there's another actor who was so brilliant, but he was five foot four, five foot five. I know Ian Holmes that size, but I think it wasn't helpful to him. But I worked, worked with him in the same company was it Richard Griffith, you remember? Yes, yes, it is. Did we just, everybody was just sort of just starting out. He hadn't been, he was about 28, he'd won the Carlton Hobbs Award, done a lot of radio, he's got, but his, both his parents were deaf and dumb. Indeed. So he, he was very sort of like, you know, he's articulate as hell. And, um, but I was there for about a year, and that was one, you know, that was great because we did three or four. We did Lawn of Dune, we did uh, 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 The Fantastics, we did something else as well. Oh, Mother Courage. Okay. And that was great, you know, that was, uh, and we were two around in the, in the van. And then, and then I went into, <laughs> I went into do Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, when it transferred from the Roundhouse, when it was first incarnation, to the West End. And we rehearsed for about 14 weeks during which time our wages were cut after about three weeks. I can't remember what happened. There was some law came in. Our wages were cut. We couldn't do anything about it. And we were rehearsing not just Joseph in the Amazing Ton of Color Dreamcoat, but there were two shows. The first one was Jacob and His Ladder, and it was going to be two halves. The first half of the evening at the Albany Theatre was going to be Jacob and His Ladder, and the second half was Joseph in the Amazing Ton of Color Dreamcoat. And we rehearsed a whole show called Jacob and His Ladder, and we did it about three times before that was cut completely. And we just did Joseph. So I get into the theatre for about half seven, Shogun went up eight, I was home by half past nine. <laughs> and that was the show which, you know, when you, you, you come out of theatre and there'll be a lot of fans, and an actor called Gary Bond was playing Joseph at the time. And you come out of theatre and people are standing outside for autographs, which, as you walk past, they say, I'm not him. I'm not him. Him. We want him, his autograph. <laughs> And then, and then, um, then I went out to Glasgow Citizens, which is one of the few companies which was doing long, you know, had a standing company, you know, Giles Havergal, 
So I was there for a year. Uh, but after that, there were very few theatres which sort of had a sort of you know, which had a, a couple of full a company for a, a long time. You know, it's more like it is now, where you go out for one job, which should may last what, four weeks rehearsal, or three weeks rehearsal, and three weeks playing, six weeks, and you do another job. And so it's a bit, a bit like that. Even when I left, this is 1972, so mm -hmm. it already sort of changed quite considerably. But it was still in operation. You had to have done 40 weeks work before you could work in the West End, unless there was a special dispensation. So you had two colour cards, you had a green card and a, oh, I can't remember what the red card and a yellow card, I can't remember, you had two cards and you had to have a certain amount of work before you... And, and theatres were allowed to take two non-equity members a year or something like that. That's yeah, what, that's what it was allowed to get out two cards a yeah, year. Something like yeah, that's right. So, you know, when you, everybody left drama school, it was a big scramble for those yes yeah. available sort of cards. Well, it's interesting because you know, I'm going to I'm going to bring something up that you mentioned when we were talking off mic uh, just on the the way here. But I think it's an interesting thing, especially the way that um, uh, the country and the, the the business is going. Um, is that acting was actually a massively political thing uh, yeah. back in the day, and, and you were a political fellow. Yourself. Big political thing, and and when I joined in 1972 in the profession, it's just a start of you know big sort of industrial unrest around that time. 1974, when I joined the, the, the Citizens Theatre, oh, here's the thing, because, you know, I, I remember coming out of, um, <laughs> coming out of the stage door of Joseph, an amazing technical dream coat, and meeting my friend, the friend who had been at the Orchard Theatre with me, it's the guy, Alan, and I can't remember his second name because he had to change it several times for, for the business, uh, who, who was this actor who I said was absolute brilliant actor. Just wow, uh, he, he was so good. He said to me, I said, What are you doing? He said, Oh, I'm going up to Glasgow Citizens Theatre. I said, Oh, I think I'll go there too. You know, this sort of confidence you had then. <laughs> oh, I think I'll go. So, you know, I thought, I'll audition for it and I'll go up to Glasgow. You know, it happened. You know, I did that. Anyway, so when I was at the Glasgow Citizens Theatre, late 1973, 74, into 74, there was quite a lot of campaigning going on because there was a three day week, there was, you know, big industrial sort of disputes and might that Glasgow and Scotland of course was full of sort of miners industrial you know people who worked on the, on the docks you know it's quite a heavily unionised um, great escape when it comes up stage unionised city and at that time there was a lot of campaigning within the union as well to stay against the Tories Industrial Relations Act keep equity a trade union and make it fight it's a sort of umbrella organisation which I think had been spearheaded by members of the Socialist Labour League, which later became the Workers' Revolutionary Party, which included people like Kika Markham, Karen Redgrave, Vanessa Redgrave, David Calder, David Hargreaves, all sorts of all sorts of people, and it's a, a, much, a broad sort of base campaign, but led by Trotskyists, and uh, every theatre had people who were coming out and campaigning for it. So you, would, you know, everybody would, everybody was involved somewhere, even if they didn't want to be. There were meetings, company meetings. You, discuss this and that and me being the sort of person who when I joined the Workers Revolutionary Party the question put to me was well do you believe in I'm paraphrasing this for all ex-Trotskyists and current Trotskyists excuse this I'm paraphrasing do you believe in the National Health Service well yes do you believe in uh, independent free, free trade unions well yes of course do you believe that there should be uh, a national education system yes of course do you believe in you know, that uh, industry should be under workers' control and, blah, 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 you know, not for profit. Well, absolutely, yes. Well, if you believe in these things, then you have to join the only party which is going to fight for these things. Otherwise, well, what's your belief stand for? Well, I see what you mean. Well, you sign it. Oh, OK, I'll sign, I'll sign there then. So, you know, because I'm biddable. My father said to me, I was in, a, in a car with him, he's driving me somewhere. He said to me, you know, you're, 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 I didn't know this. I, it was only then that I realised it. He said to me, you're, you're always very biddable. He said to me, I was the youngest of five, four older sisters, and so I think it's probably not surprising that I was biddable, I just did what I was told <laughs> all the time. But it was deeply resented that underneath somewhere. There. So that's a bit of me a subversive, because I couldn't be open about my hostility to authority, but I just went along with it. So I think, so I joined the WRP. As far as I was concerned, you know, once I joined, that was it. I had to stay a member, because otherwise my integrity, if I just left or something, found something I disagreed with or 
but I didn't join it because I'd thoroughly read the manifestos of all left-wing political parties, not just left-wing political parties, but centrist political organisations, or even right-wing organisations, and made my choice through, you know, a thorough sort of examination of, you know, policy and history, and oh, you, I joined because, oh, I suppose I better had, hadn't I, that's why it, Okay, well, what about older, wiser Sam now when we've suddenly got a very, mm, very big change in the political uh, spectrum yeah, of the country? Yeah, very interesting, and it sort, of, it sort of, you know, creates a sort of little, oh, you know, excitement that, um, uh, you know, maybe one can, you know, because here's the thing, you know, I've always, I think, all, all the time, I think my basic position has pretty much always been sitting on the fence, my instinctive position. Not always. There's occasions when I've had to go, I stand for this, and this is what I believe in. But most of the time I go, well, I don't know, is that, that's right, and I read that, and that's right, well, that makes sense, oh, I've read something else, well, that makes sense, so that contradicts that, but that, you know. So all the time I'm going, oh, I can't, and particularly after I left the British Revolution Party, I've been stunned by the knowledge that how easy it is to sort of attach yourself to a belief system, and then prejudicially, everything that doesn't belong to that is therefore you're hostile to, or you won't accept. And you, you, one knows it from any, you know, one can be, one can uh, decide about another actor, oh, I don't like that person's acting, and really resent it when they're really good because they've upset your belief system. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I'm sort of quite, I'm quite aware of, of that. Well, you're, you're obviously a very, you know, you, you're a man who thinks and you're a perceptive man, so uh, let's turn that into the profession. You've worked, you know, since the 70s, Till now, so so tell me about the actors that you've worked with, that um, have either have maybe inspired you, or the ones that you've just looked at and gone, oh, they've they've cracked, it. you know, they're the actors that I look at and go, wow, well, I you, do, can, I you do, can do it. I, do, I, I I have to say the one the one actor. I'm just moving now to the fridge so that so you can get, get milk for the tea. <laughs> the you can tell actor, this is real, everybody. The most recent actor who sort of I just had to sort of go, wow. Was Kevin Spacey? Ah, uh, inherit the wind at the old. Yeah, bit. but yeah. always, you know, he just sort of knocks my head off. I don't know quite how he does it, but he certainly inherit the wind. What you know, I loved, I loved. I, I couldn't stop watching him, you know, when he was on stage. He's just something about him, Kevin Spacey. And you were in that with them. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna take this because I take mine black. So oh, do you? Uh, okay. yeah. Do you want the tea bag taken out? Uh, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, and you were in that with, of course, there's a Doctor Who connection, because you were in that with uh, the mighty David Troughton. Oh, mighty David Troughton, and in fact, I met David Troughton when I did Joseph and Amazing Technicolor Drinker, because his wife, Alison, yeah. was in that same production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Drinker, which I did, and I met him, and he was going out with her then, and I met him then, and met him later at the RSC, we worked at the Royal Shakespeare Company together, I think, yes we did, and then, you know, so... Yeah, I've known David quite a long time. And you've done some great parts. Uh, I was looking at, you know, you could go, oh, hang on, let's have a look, Sam Cox was in uh, King John, but you played Hubert. I, I mean, did they're, play they're, Hubert. They're good parts, these, that you play on the stage. Hubert was, uh, Hubert was an interesting part because here's the other thing about Hubert, is that there's, um, uh, there's Hubert which appears in largely the second half of the piece, who's, who's, who's enrolled to look after the boys and to, to maybe kill the boy and has a sort of change of heart. And that's the part I thought I was coming out to play. But in fact, what I discovered is that he's, he's the same character, or at least in many versions of King John, he's the same character as, uh, not Burgundy, as a character who, is, who, who the, the, the town is under siege at the beginning of the thing, and he stands on the ramparts and has a long conversation. Yeah. And it, it turns out that this character is Hubert. And I didn't know that, so when we came to the day before, I was up in Stratford, and the, I was just reading the script probably for the first time, and I suddenly discovered that the part I was playing was much bigger than I thought it was. Yeah, so I, <laughs> that's always nice. <laughs> that's nice. Oh, yeah. that's cool. <laughs> I'm in the beginning, and that scene, and that scene, and I'm in that, you know, so that was, yeah, he was nice, and that came, that came also about because of this production of, I'd done a festin, uh, uh, Josie Rourke, a director of King John, who runs the Donmar. No, and she'd seen, she'd seen that, and, went, and someone had to fall, someone had to drop out. So an actor had to drop out of doing King John. He was doing two productions at the RSC, and he wasn't well, so he could only redo one. So he had to drop out. 
So I was a very late sort of replacement for him. But it's, I think it's because of, and Josie Rob can tell me, well, that's the shortest case, I think it's because she'd seen Feston and, and people were very well disposed towards that production and towards me and, you know, it got me the Doctor Who job and it got me that thing at the RSC as well. Well, I always think I always think you I think you can always tell a good actor is if they've played the Archbishop of Canterbury and Henry V. I love because that part. I it's a love beast that part. of a part, but but it's it's brilliant if you're good. Do you know? It's boring if you're terrible. It's boring. But you know, here's the thing about it: is it's what I think. A lot of the time, in fact, even in the production I did, I had to fight tooth and nail with with Edward Hall. He's a really good director to get to even get some of that long stuff restored because the tendency is to cut it oh. it's beautiful but that's the point the whole point yeah, the whole point about <laughs> it is it is long 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 and involved involved it's just wonderful it's just great stuff it's such great stuff it's such fun to do if you do the whole if you're allowed to do the whole thing you have, it's a bit like when I first when I did the uh, first time I worked for the RSC I did a Troilus and Cressida and the part I played was Menelaus but but what happened in, in our production, which Michael Boyd had done, he sort of collided, colluded the two parts of um, Menelaus and um, who's the old uh, 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 old character, old actor, old character in it. Anyway, he a, a character in in Troyes and Cresta who doesn't stop talking. Okay, in fact, he's has he's interrupted several times. He just goes on and on and on. Menelaus in in Troyes and Cresta has about one line. And silence of the whole thing. So there's two really interesting parts. One character who talks all the time and doesn't start talking and just keeps going on and on and on and on. And another character who says absolutely nothing, even though it's a prominent sort of character. Michael Boyd has combined the two parts, but of course then it's neither one thing nor the other. You know, it's not somebody silent. It's not the whole. It's not the whole gamut of. Which I can remember the name. Terrible. It's not the whole gamut of that person who talks all the time. It's now someone who just talks a bit. And a bit, bit, bit. So I'm, I'm always, I, I'm always. If part's really long, I'm thinking it's long because there's a reason why this guy carries on talking and nobody stops him. And that is the interesting thing about it that they talk for a long time. So Canterbury is one of those parts, and I hate it when they cut it. I understand, I understand them cutting it, but I go as an actor, I go, don't. It's just brilliant to to talk, to have that, to a character, to have all that stuff to say and to want to say it and to carry on saying it and just keep on saying it and then he, when, he, when, when you think it's finished he goes on again and then you see, he, surely he can have nothing more to say yeah he's got even more to say he's got more to say more to say more to say and then someone will have a, a sentence and he'll say more you know that's great but it's not so interesting when it's cut because you know I want to save time mm -hmm. that's not interesting I don't think it's interesting because there's nothing in itself it's not the, the, the words he says are not going to resonate with audiences but the fact that he says this thing and then has another thing to say about it and then has another name on the list and then 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 another name on the list that's interesting but to have just three of those names what's that mean doesn't mean anything well, and he's got a line, hasn't he? He says, and as is as clear as is the summer sun. That's it. Well, okay. <laughs> it's like, well, that's the whole moment. And then you say it. It's a, it's it's the house goes down. Yeah. If you if you've just gone like that and cut it to threads, then it's, it means nothing. It's sure. Just, yeah. Well, okay. We'll talk about the things. I mean, you've, uh, I'm going to have to draw this to a close simply because you've given me far more time than uh, I threatened you with. Um, you you know you you're that that rare creature who's 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 actually carried it off and 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 worked consistently as an actor um, through these changing um, time periods that we've talked about. Um, aside from your own personal satisfaction doing it, is it important? Does it matter? The fact that things are changing now is that is that dangerous? I don't know because it also opens up lots of possibilities as well. People finding different ways of doing things and. You know, you've got a lot of young actors who leave college now who form their own companies and get their own work because there's no other way they can get the work. So, you know, different ways of working. You know, it's difficult. But I remember when I was in the WRP, you know, the, the entertainment industry, which I'm a member of, and still, the entertainment industry should be nationalised under workers' control without compensation. That was the, that was the sort of phrase which applied to everything. And the argument one used to have when I used to go into... <laughs> we has to go into pub after pub after pub after pub in the Sockey Hall Road in Glasgow with my copies of the Workers' Press, 
you know, a very middle class or sounding middle class English guy talking to a load of people who just come off, you know, the building ships and stuff like this. My argument always was, working class has the right to entertainment. Okay, people have the right to entertainment in a civilized society. You know, we've got to defend that right as much as we have to defend every other right. You know, and you know that. But it's not just entertainment. Sometimes it's just entertainment. I know. You know, if you go to the theatre, you can change your mood and transform you, you know, for at least a day or, or half an hour or a couple of hours. Particularly if it's, I always think, if it's funny, but not just if it's funny, if it's moving, you can be affected by it. It changes how you look at people or your own feelings about yourself or, you know, so the experience for an audience can be quite important. Just in itself, go and see something live, not just something live. Film can have a big effect on, on people. Television can have a big effect on people. Live particularly has because you're usually seeing it with a whole lot of other people as well. Having a communal, communal experience with other people which you might not have in any other. In the other you, may, you may or may not go to church or, but you, don't, or you may go to football or you may go to concerts. But there's another way of having an experience with a lot of other people who you may not know, strangers. I think that's sort of it, probably sort of important to one's psyche as a human being. You know, being social animals and all the rest of it. As an actor, it's great. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing really like it than, than being alive on that stage. If you can be alive on the stage, then you're 100% you. But there's also a bit of you who's also observing what you're doing. So it's a bit like sort of a, a great way to, of meditation, you know, where you're sort of in control, but you're not controlling it. You know, you're, you're observing the thing while you're doing it. And that's a... Uh, a state in which it's, you know, which is great to be in. And one seeks to be in it in one's daily life anyway, instead of closed down. It's very hard, but sometimes you can do it. And when you're working as an actor, you can be there, you know. I don't know whether it's adopting someone else's character, and that may be it, or maybe just just um, this deciding, deciding that you're comfortable, you know what you're doing, and then you don't have to think about it. It's like driving a car, you don't have to think about it. You can keep your eyes open and see what's going on around you and then you can and that's a great fulfilling state to be in but it's not always that you feel like that quite often you feel more like I did last Thursday you know? <laughs> I don't want to so be we're going to come back to last Thursday last Thursday oh god alright ambition Sam if I was to meet up with you in 20 years time and do this interview all over again what would you like to tell me that you've done I know I'd like to say that I've been doing sort of some you know what I really like I like to be involved with the whole piece I've only directed one thing in my life, and that was by accident, and I really so enjoyed it because, right from ten o'clock till six o'clock, I was involved the whole time with the piece I was working with, and, and nothing was a problem. I had a say, I had a say in everything, every decision that was needed to be made. I had a say in it. As an actor, you're not usually in that position. You maybe have a say in the scene you're in or the part you're playing, but I often have, want to say loads and loads of stuff about the whole piece so I would like to be able to say I'd like to play much more uh, much larger roles to have much more of an influence on a good play you know I don't particularly like doing bad plays I've not done many bad plays but I'd like to do a really good you know I did Deep Blue Sea a couple of years ago in Leeds what a great you know to do a really great piece of work where you're not having to make something work but you know it's written so well that unlike the Crucible he's a great writer I'd like to have. I'd like to play bigger parts. That's really what I'd like to. Do. Not because I want to play bigger parts, but because I want to. I want to be. I want to be involved in everything. That's really what no, I'd like to say. I think as well. And look, I think that I have to say, I'm barely touched by <laughs> it. The least interesting thing about you is the fact you've been in Doctor Who, but people will will hound you for it because it's Doctor Who. So. Um, Let's let's just see if you've got any uh, any other memories of of doing that show because the tenant, of course, you worked with, before, who's been the most successful Doctor Who possibly of yes. all time. So, yeah. but, uh, who I've um, encountered before, and, and it seems like the nicest man imaginable. Yeah, he is. Um, so, he is. so tell me about working with David. <coughs> you, I'm I'm always astonished working with him because he 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 is so passionate. He's so passionate about what he is. His acting is so passionate. You know, he's so on it all the time. He's so unselfconscious, it seems to me, when he works. That in itself is like so enviable. He knows it backwards. Uh, uh, he's, he's uh, you know, it's not Justin. I've seen, of course, do many other things in Doctor Who, but he's so 
he's so bright, he's so, he's so, he's such, got such wit in his head. You know, I like, I like seeing people who've got what I think are sort of, you know, the, the witty. I, I watched Margaret Atwood giving a talk here yesterday about her latest thing. She is such a witty woman. I completely loved her. You know, I, I like to like David Tennant. They're, they're, they're very witty. They're hugely witty. And he brings that to everything he does, so that's what I love about him. And what about special effects as an actor? Because there is a shot in the Edith Stanton where you've got your face has been yeah. sort of... Yeah. I mean, a, 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 as an actor, is that, a, is that a, a sort of tedium of the business? Well, I can't even remember how, what they did. I think it must have been post-production. I don't, I don't know, did we have anything? Did we, I think they just did it after, on, on, on the special effects uh, editing machine they did yeah. after that. I can't... So, I, I, I think very rarely have I had to do much as an actor to accommodate any special effects. Do you know what I mean? I haven't mm-hmm. sort of had to sort of... Do I think it's interesting? Yeah, I sort of think it's interesting, but I've never had to sort of involve myself with it. And, and it was quite a hard job for them to make that at all convincing to have no faces but look as if we had a face. You know, that was mm, dodgy... You know, they sort of made it work, I thought, just just about. It's a big ask, I thought, to sort of make that in any way believable. But they sort of did, I think. Did you? And, and did yeah, you I, do, I do, I do. But do you get why... Why Doctor Who has the hold that it has, and why of all the, you know? Well, I think I think I think partly because obviously you know I think people grow up with it, so it's a sort of attached to their sort of growing up. And, and it's been so long running. This thing I did a little, I did a little thing for you know a little, what they called, uh, um, uh, uh, it's in a pub, it's a room in a pub, uh, and and it was three of us. There were three of us. None of us. I'd, all, it's all, the three of us had only done one part in one one episode, and there were about forty, fifty people come along convention, small convention. Sure. Do you know? What, what I really liked about it was they were so knowledgeable about the subject. You know, I think that people tend to get dismissed as, you know, derogatorily, like train spotters are dismissed. You know, what's wrong with train spotting? You know, it's just like colouring in, or it's a med- you know, it's a practice. You know, okay, come on. They just knew the subject, not just in a factual way. They thought about what they knew. They'd had, you know, that if they were asked a question about my character, they knew more about my character than. I did. They <laughs> thought about emotive. You know, I was so fascinated by the fact that, um, uh, you know, so it was a source of. You know, people study the Bible. You know, I mean, studying anything, any anything is going to produce something or other. Not necessarily good or bad. You know, but you study anything for long enough. You know, it's like the Torah. You know, everybody who studies the Torah has their own interpretation of it. Everybody who does a yoga class more than. 50, 60 times will have their own understanding of yoga. Anybody who studies Doctor Who is going to have their own formulate, their own imaginative sort of concept. You know, I think, I think, wow, well, good for you, that sort of thing, as long as you're not neglecting other things in your life which you could be doing, you know. I sort of... So it's very interesting me doing that because, you know, it's very easy to sort of, um, you know, dismiss, I think, sort of people who take a... What, what they might describe as an obsessive interest in the subject. What's wrong with, you know, how can you... Yeah, especially you're a specialist if you do. You know, you, you know, people say, "Oh, he's a specialist in 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 uh, quantum physics. How brilliant is that?" You know, specialism's sort of seen as a good thing. It is. You know, why not? People, you know, who make a real study of Doctor Who. That's fine, as far as I'm concerned. Well, bless you. And I'm so. Look, normally, I I do 25 minutes to half an hour. This has been absolutely brilliant. I've I've really enjoyed this, and I hope you have too. I have. Uh, my my last two questions are very set. The first one. Uh, is if we don't have the name because I can do it in the outro. Uh, the reason for the charity that you're nominating. So okay, I have four sisters. I don't have four sisters now. I've got three sisters. My my third sister, who lived in Shropshire for a period of time, was a teacher in Newport in Shropshire, which is why I asked you about Shropshire. She was in her forties and and discovered very late that she had cancer. You know, she'd been to heart hospital to what's wrong with her, blah blah blah. To, you know, the time they discovered this is 1990. Or just before 1990, I think it was 1990, she died. So it was all too late. So by the time they discovered it, there's nothing to be done. Things have moved on hugely since then, you know, cancers. But she went into a hospice in, in somewhere in Shropshire. So, 
And I used to see it there, that's one of the last I saw in the office, so I'd like to give the money to that one. And I'll tell you what it is to I'll look it up and yeah. I remember. And I'll do an outro. And the final question is, we've talked about so many other things, which I always think is the best thing about this podcast, but it always boils down to Doctor Who. The people listening to this uh, have, have been attracted to it because it's nominally about Doctor Who. What is your message to the Doctor Who fans uh, who listen to this podcast? Um, God, bloody hell, that's a, probably the hardest question. Message... Um, uh, 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 um, message. Um, uh, I don't know. What, what, go on. Give me what. Give, what has anybody else said? Let me see if that. Well, was most going... people say keep watching, and and to the extent that it's it's a bit of a gag on the internet that everyone says keep watching. So anything apart from keep watching <laughs> is, a, is a good. <laughs> message. Oh, right, okay. Uh, okay. I mean, I, it, this was convened nominally to, to, to celebrate fifty years of Doctor Who, which was two years. Oh, yeah, ago. I, I reckon that there'll be a lot of people, a lot of people who watch it, whose imaginations. Will have been stimulated by it, who have that probably have, you know, uh, who who or may have or could sort of develop their own scenarios and ideas about stories, etc. And I think it'd be very interesting if someone was to encourage people's, you know, to ask, come on, give us all your ideas about stories, episodes, what things could happen for Doctor Who, and let's sift out, you know, because there's going to be a load of stuff in there that nobody, you know, Moffat or anybody else is not going to think of. Just people who watch it are going to have loads of ideas, and maybe they could be, you know, turned into, manifested into episodes. Who knows? Or indeed, uh, a very stupid and time consuming podcast. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, indeed, yeah. Uh, I've loved this. Sam Cox. Thank Toby, you thank much. you very much. Bless you. Cheers, that's us shaking hands. Thank you, that is. That's great for the radio. <laughs> oh, that was brilliant. Thank you. That, yeah, really engaging. That was great, wasn't it? Um, what an interesting fellow uh, Sam is, and I really enjoyed uh, his company during that. His charity is the Seven Hospice. Seven as in the river, so it has an extra R. It's S-E-V-E-R-N. Severn. Seven Hospice, which is www.sevenhospice.org.uk. If everybody who listened to this gave a quid, we would uh, we would raise a decent wedge, so you can that would be great there's another who's round next time my play grand designs of the third kind which was on on monday the 4th of september can still be found on iplayer but just for a couple more weeks monday the 4th of september if you find it on iplayer it was the afternoon play at 2 15 grand designs of the third kind it has one or two jokes in it um and also i'm presenting a three-hour archive show on BBC Radio 4 Extra on Saturday um, starts at 7 and repeated again at 9 uh, called The Golden Age of American Radio it's got some really interesting archive treats, have a listen and until the next time, thanks to Ian Atkins as ever for dealing with these very short notice files that he gets and has to make ready for the internet hello Ian, he's probably doing this at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to bed now ta-ta Then, uh, you won't believe where we are. You've landed a slap in the middle of a flood. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Early Adventures. The Outliers. So, uh, where are we, Doctor? Your, your, your future somewhere. I, I should say it's very interesting. Oh, yeah? Every house is the same. Stretching off at... Well, it could be miles. She's after the TARDIS. Very sensibly, Jamie. It's the one thing out of place. Uh, we're, in, we're in some kind of mine. But the size of it. They dig out whatever they're after and then they're left with huge tunnels which they fill with houses. Aye, but why? For people to live in, of course. You... An Earth examiner. It is what the badge says. It happens when you're alone. Doctor, this thing, it must be intelligent. There must be an error. It's impossible. Flooding is getting worse. Doctor! Doctor! Big finish. 
We love stories. Is, uh, is everyone here? Is anyone not accounted for? <laughs> <laughs>